Hello, this is Search for Truth Radio and we start a new series today. It's a series which will last 14 weeks, God willing. And it's a set of studies on the awesome sovereignty of God. The series and book title is Our God Reigns. And the title of today's talk is Heaven's Worship of the Supreme Ruler. Now, if we gain a true appreciation of just who God is, uh, this will undoubtedly make our Christian lives deeper and more meaningful. And our worship should be more satisfying both to God and to us, his worshippers. So it promises to be a very worthwhile study. Now, Brian will take us straight into the Bible and into heaven itself. Here's Brian. Indeed I will, John as we look at heaven's worship of the supreme ruler seated on the throne as captured in two verses from Revelation chapter 4. From there we read, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. God's name is closely related to the verb to be, as in the great I am. Here in Revelation 4 verse 8, he is described as the one who was, and is, and ever will be. And the angelic beings address God as holy, holy, holy. The primary meaning of holy is God's otherness. The difference between God and us is exposed here in the worship of heaven. God's holiness, that is his otherness, is presented in exactly these terms, he singled out uniquely as the one who always had, has, and will have being. Whereas by contrast, all created things, we're told, came into existence by a sovereign act of his divine will. To borrow from historic Christian teachers, God is not only the supreme being, but he is also a necessary being. What that is saying is this. God absolutely must be. He simply cannot not be. If God were to cease to be, the universe would vaporise and just disappear. Looking at it the other way round, this has been used as a classic argument for the existence of God. For suppose God did not exist, and that there once truly was not anything, not even a sea of energy obeying scientific laws then there would still be, and could only be, nothing now. There is no such thing as a free lunch. You can't get something out of nothing, not spontaneously, not in 20 billion years. To believe otherwise is to believe in magic. In fact, it's worse than that. It'd be like pulling a rabbit out of a hat without the hat and without the magician. And that brings us to verse 11. Revelation 4, verse 11. It's God's unique prerogative to bring something out of nothing. Verse 11 says, God created all things, and because of his sovereign will, they came into existence, into being. 
There is no other possible logical or scientific explanation. Let all inquiry stop and worship begin as it continues in heaven. To find more detail, let's turn to the other end of God's word, the Bible, and to its first book, the book of Genesis. Let's revisit some basic things the Bible makes very plain about God's creation of all things. First, creation was by the word of God, and in particular, by Christ. Genesis chapter 1 repeatedly has the phrase, and God said. The person whom the Bible reveals to us as Jesus Christ is later identified as the agent of creation. The Bible offers us many proofs that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Nothing else satisfies all the facts. On earth, by merely speaking, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, performed wonders instantly in the natural world. His word alone was enough to heal the paralysed and tormented and to raise the dead. And there was an immediate response to it, such that we read that the wind and the waves immediately obey the voice of Christ. Genesis and the Bible as a whole knows of no process being used in creation, only the word and will of God. This agrees fully with our opening words taken from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. God created all things, it said, and because of his will they existed and were created. The scientific laws that we can discover regulate how the completed universe continues to operate, not how it began. Second, let's check out what the Bible says about human origins. A straightforward reading of the opening chapters of Genesis, but one that's confirmed by experts, leaves no doubt that we're engaging with Hebrew narrative, and not Hebrew in its poetry form. The Bible's first book tells us plainly that Adam was not made from, nor did he come from, any pre-existing living creatures. Rather, it actually says that he was made directly from the dust. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. In this way, man is made in the image of God, and is different from the animals. Opinions and speculations abound, of course, but if we take the Bible at all seriously, surely we'd want to weigh the precise meaning of man being formed from the dust of the ground and weigh it alongside Genesis 3 verse 19, which states, Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our decay back to dust at death is not a poetic description, but is sober reality. This leaves us with no choice over how to understand the Bible's meaning about human origins. The texts in Genesis 2-7 and 3-19 taken together plainly mean Adam was made from actual dust in the first place and not from a pre-existing creature. Third, mentioning death there raises the question about its existence before the fall of man. Six times God declared that what he'd made was good in Genesis chapter 1, before finally and emphatically signing everything off as very good in verse 31. The living creatures are spoken of possessing life in the same sense as humans do. That is, they're spoken of as living creatures or living souls. 
Not even the living creatures were to be killed for food at this pre-flood stage. There was no sense of a suffering world or of a world groaning under a curse. It was Adam who introduced suffering and death to the pristine world of God's making. Romans 5.12 says, As through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The Bible will later, by the hand of the Apostle Paul again, speak of death as an enemy. As such, it belongs to God's acts of judgment, and not to his acts of creation. It might be wondered if this reference in Romans 5.12 is restricted to human death, due to it being man who willingly disobeyed. But three chapters later, in Romans 8, Paul confirms the subhuman creation was equally affected, emphasising this by adding that it was not willingly affected, as opposed to the willing rebellion of the first human. The full text in Romans 8 and 20 is this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. And then it adds, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers until now. But, for the sake of argument, let's assume that death was normal from the outset of creation among the lower orders, shall we say, of God's creation, but that it simply stopped applying to humanity during the time of their innocence. Then the entirety of God's creation could hardly have been described as very good, unless nature red in tooth and claw can somehow be thought of as consistent with very good. The meaning of all this is confirmed by the biblical principle of a life for a life. Human life is forfeit because of sin, and forgiveness is explained as being through the sacrifice of the life of an animal substitute. Bloodshedding is the way in which the taking of life is described in the Bible. The blood of an animal was never for human consumption. This was because God had reserved it for the ritual forgiveness of human sin. When we reflect on the solemnity of this, do we seriously think that nature, red and tooth and claw, could have been God's way from the beginning? The New Testament repeats that the penalty for sin is death, Romans 6.23. Consequently, a blood sacrifice is needed to atone for sin. It was consistent with this, that Jesus Christ died as an atoning sacrifice when he died for human sins. And that was specifically because death had been introduced subsequently into a fallen creation as the punishment for sin, the gospel. And so our salvation is based upon the first man, Adam, bringing death into the world by sinning. And then the second man, Jesus Christ, taking our place. By the first man came death, by the second man came life. And number four, the flood was global. Its global nature is readily proven from Genesis 7 verse 19. All the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered, covered with water. And Genesis 9 and 15 and 16 tell us, The waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow, that's the rainbow, shall be in the cloud. The rainbow covenant cannot possibly be referring to a localised flood. Otherwise, the covenant would have been broken many times over as many people have experienced local floods in many places over the centuries. Just as the second coming of Christ to the earth will be known universally, so the flood was universal, concerning the whole world. 
the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Peter each draw that parallel between the flood and Jesus coming back to the earth. Any plain reading of the text tells us there was a worldwide flood burying land-based, air-breathing creatures, which means that this currently cursed and groaning world is not what God started with, but one that's scarred by our human rebellion in the original sin. I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today and it's whetted your appetite for what's to come in future weeks. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Brian, then do write in. Here's how to obtain the book. Just write in and ask for the title Our God Reigns. You can use email or the post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4, 8DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So many thanks for your interest in these studies. Time's almost gone. We do appreciate your company and your interest. Now, next week, our studies take us to the flood, the Tower of Babel and God's choice of Abraham. But for now, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon. And meantime, may God richly bless you. <laughs>